The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Views Room, a weekly conversation among Breaking Views columnists about big numbers, crunchy deals, and nasty spats. I'm Jennifer Saba. This week, I'll be joined by my colleagues in Asia, Europe, and the United States to discuss the second part of our latest predictions. First up, Pete Sweeney talks to Robin Mack about why 2017 will be the year commercial drones will really take off. So, Robin, commercial drones have been of high interest to consumers in recent years. There's been some companies making a lot of money in this sector. Uh, What do you see is, is coming up for the industry next year? So the market today is very dominated by um, like consumer tech enthusiasts and hobbyists. This year, there have been a lot of legislation in different countries that will allow companies like Amazon to do things like use small drones to deliver packages. So the hope is that when these different rules and regulations are finalized, then more businesses and companies can start using drones. Well, so has there been a a big holdup from the legislation front, or has it been... uh... Yeah, so that's mainly been one of the biggest obstacles, um, because legally this is very untested. So right now, Amazon just recently trialed its first drone delivery, but they had to do it in the United Kingdom, because the United States just doesn't have type of laws that would allow them to do something like this. Well, regardless, some companies have made a lot of mon- bunch of money so far uh, right across the border up in Shenzhen as one of the world's, if not the world's largest commercial drone maker, DJI. Um, how, did, how did they get to become so successful at this? Right. So DJI is, it's a Shenzhen-based company. Its uh, last valuation is $10 billion. And this company has really, you know, grown very quickly. So first they sold consumer drones to target hobbyists and tech enthusiasts. And what their greatest strength is that because they're located in Shenzhen, they are a hardware company. So they can actually make drones at very low cost and bring it to the market very quickly. They're investing quite a lot in software um, and different features and, and, and in their drones as well. Where is the cutting edge of the industry, assuming these legislative things are clarified? You know, because right now I think of gl- drones as kind of flying cameras that go around and, and film right. stuff, and, I, you know, the idea of them having delivery sounds interesting. Right. So, I mean, it's not just deliveries. I mean, it's um, gathering data, monitoring, surveillance. So the cutting edge would be actually in the software side. So what to do with all this data, what to do with, you know, all the images collected. There's also, you know, drones that can oil and gas exploration was flagged as a big one, transport infrastructure. Um, a lot of companies can easily use drones, um, but it's just the technology for, you know, very specific uses for each different companies business and sector. Well, in terms of the data collection stuff that you're talking about, that, that, that's interesting. I mean, is this, is this going to be stuff that's going to generate new companies, new startups developing these products, or are the existing sure. players like Google, these guys are already positioned to just kind of plug into this, this, this new hardware platform and just put their systems? I think there, there's a lot of room for newcomers to come. So, you know, a lot of venture-backed companies like 3D Robotics you know, are making, you know, specifically commercial drones with very specific usage. And are they, do they tend to make the software as well, or are these separate? Right now, it's quite fragmented. It's quite separate. But it's definitely, it makes sense. And I can see somewhere down the line that you do have a bit more integration. So DJI is actually a very good example because a lot of their software is, they make some of the in-house stuff, but then they also contract it out. But it does make sense to sort of move towards a more integrated business model. Okay. Well, thanks, Robin. Thank you.
There are promising signs on the horizon in drug research from an unsuspecting and humble source, the mushroom. Recent clinical trials found that a magic ingredient in shrooms has proven to be effective treating depression in cancer patients without any serious side effects. Its development is that the new drug could help tackle the growing cost of mental illness. So joining us on the line from London is Breaking Views columnist Dominic Elliott, who wrote this enlightening prediction. Hello, Dominic. Hello, Jen. Good to be with you. Thank you. So first of all, kind of talk about the costs of mental illness. It seems to be incredible. Like you said that the World Economic Forum basically thinks that it's going to double from 2.5 trillion in 2010. And this is going to happen in, by 2030. So it seems like it's, it's a ballooning problem, a mushrooming problem, if you will. Um, <laughs> So why don't you uh, kind of talk about, you know, why the, this is so promising and, and what researchers have found? Sure. Well, I suppose that the key thing to remember here is that psychedelic drugs have had this long stigma since the early 1970s when the United States and then other countries decided to outlaw them. But actually there had been a fair bit of research in the 60s that had been quite promising both into LSD and also into psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms. And what we're seeing now is that there have been more recent clinical trials that have shown much the same as uh, the, the trials back in the 60s. And these help those patients who are suffering from depression or anxiety to essentially reset their neural pathways and to, I guess, get a bigger picture. It's worth noting that this is done under very highly supervised sessions um, and that there have been some side effects, notably sort of nausea and, in one case, vomiting, but none, none that are so significant as to warrant a lot of uh, real fear. And it does look as though there will be a lot more late stage sort of trials in, in Europe, certainly over the next couple of years. Yeah, I mean, what really jumped out at me about your piece was that the trials just, they didn't seem to just, you know, kind of work. They seemed to be, like, incredibly effective. I mean, it was like staving off depression for, like, six months from one dosage of this stuff. Is that the case? And, I mean, that seems to me, like, groundbreaking and something that, you know, do you think that they're going to try and fast-track this to, to kind of get it, get it going? Well, I think because there are all these fears, rightly or wrongly, that, that are associated with, you know, magic mushrooms, it might be difficult to to accelerate or to fast track the process. I think this will take a lot more, you know, research. I mean, yes, we've seen a lot of academic studies that are very positive, but regulators usually like to see wider applications. So um, these studies have focused just on patients with cancer um, who are suffering depression and anxiety, I guess regulators uh, would probably want to see that these drugs could treat, you know, patients that, that aren't suffering from terminal illness, that, you know, just those more generally with depression and anxiety. And they would like to see a lot more studies as well. So I don't think there are any shortcuts, but potentially this is groundbreaking in the sense that, as, as you alluded to, just one treatment, one administration can have lasting effects for up to six months, possibly beyond. And that actually scientists that I've spoken to think that it's conceivable that 
someone suffering from depression or anxiety more generally might only need, say, one or two or, or possibly three doses in a lifetime to keep them from slipping back into those depressive tendencies. That's an incredible piece of information. So if I'm looking at that and I'm an investor, I, I might be thinking, wow, like how should I be preparing like for this, you know, potential development, you know, if it, if it decides to catch on or, you know, once the, the research gets going, you seem to point that there's evidence that investments in mental health treatment, they have pretty high returns. That's right. I mean, you know, there, there was a study recently in medical journal The Lancet, which suggests that if there was, say, $10 billion in, in net present money invested every year from now until 2030, the net present value of the enhanced economic productivity might be $400 billion. So that's a, that's a sizable return. I, I think in that same study, it, it pointed out that maybe only investing in things like malaria really give you a much, a sort of noticeably higher um, return on investment in terms of uh, medical treatment. So it's definitely up there. It's definitely significant. There are some problems, though. I think this is a clear case where you might need some kind of pi public or private partnership to try to smooth around some of the edges. I mean, for one thing, it's very hard to see that it'll be easy to produce pharmaceutical-grade quality of psilocybin anytime soon. And then there's the cost of training the people that will be needed to supervise these administrations. Um, it, they are uh, there to guide the patients through the process. It is um, difficult work, and, and therefore there's a cost attached to that as well. So... I think it, you know, it's not something that pharmaceutical companies will necessarily jump on because it's that's not a pill that they can sell, you know, in huge bulk. As I, as we said, you know, this is something that may be used infrequently and therefore may not have as much of an appeal for um, big pharma. Okay, well, it's it's a fascinating subject, and uh, thank you for talking us through it, and we appreciate you coming on the views room. My pleasure. Thanks, Jen. Okay, thanks, Dominic. We turn to the world of cars for our next two predictions. First with me, I've got Richard Beals, one of our editors here in New York. And Richard, you've been looking at the world of driverless cars, or more specifically, who on earth is going to be responsible if and when one of these things crashes? Right, this is one of these these wonderful, you know, we all love the idea of the technology or are scared by it and cars driving around. But th mm -hmm. these things can, you know, the technologists can do what they do, the engineers can do what they do, but the structures, ha the other structures have to be in place. One is the legal structures. You have to right. have laws that allow people to uh, drive those cars on the road, basically. And actually only one state, as far as I know, has now has laws on the books. Michigan, and of course. It's good to know they're ahead of the game yeah, for once. Cars, you would hope. Um, and that, that's for, for cars in general on the roads, whereas other states are just, or several other well, states. No, so, so this is a law that actually envisages actual driverless cars right. driving around, as opposed to driverless cars being tested, which mm. a number of states have on the books as something that's allowed, and so on. But another of the criteria, another of the framework things that has to you know, adjust to driverless cars is insurance. Now, uh, most car insurance is built around the driver. Yeah. It's a two hundred, nearly two hundred billion dollar business altogether yep. every year in the U.S. So it's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of money in this, and you know the one of the justifications for driverless cars is ninety plus percent of accidents are caused by human error, 
if you can eliminate most of the human error, replacing it with just occasional machine error or you know bad programming, whatever yeah. it may be, then you should reduce the accident bill and the yeah, absolutely. medical costs a, yeah, and so a, on. A, a massive boon for for parts of the economy, but also, as you said, a, a, probably a drain on others. The insurance industry, the, the right. medical industry. So, so, so you know, that's fine. So, car insurers, driver insurers. You know, the Geico's, Progressive's, yeah. all states of the world, in, in the U.S. at least, um, they have to figure out what's going on. Uh, it's not quite yet. This isn't going to be something that damages their business next year, but it might be in five, ten years' time start really happening. Um, but also, who's going to be responsible? And, you know, the, the sort of obvious place that people are pointing is the manufacturers. So yeah. instead of the drivers having to get insurance, the manufacturers who provide the car and the software and everything else in a package to owners. So it could be General Motors. It, it could, could be General be, Motors. It could be Delphi. It could be it Google. Could be Google, Apple, whoever gets right. involved. Right. But then how do you pay for that? Because yes. insurance, yes, the damages may be lower, but there'll still be some. There'll be still be mm. some crashes when things go wrong and somebody has to pay for that. And So do you build an insurance premium up front into the price of a vehicle? How does that work legally? It's yeah. a state-by-state. State. Insurance is a state-by-state state regulated thing in the US, so you have to get all the states on side to kind of figure out how this is going to work. Uh, so when it comes to the, the liability side of um, driverless car operation, it's, it's quite a lot to think through. Mm. Now, as you said, it's not something that's going to be happening immediately. Um, but the reason why you're looking at this as a prediction for next year is, is why? Well, be- because you've had a couple of things happen. You have things g- ongoing things. You have obviously car insurers are thinking about this question, right. and the people developing the cars, driverless cars, are also thinking about this question. And some of them are already in, in, in action. I think Uber is, is testing driverless cars. Yeah, in Uber is testing. Google is testing. There's a driverless taxis being tested in yeah. Singapore and so on. So you're beginning to see it happen in real life. And then most of these have engineers slash drivers there to take over if yeah. something goes wrong. But you also had the federal government in the U.S. came out with guidelines uh, this autumn for sort of regulations that will happen, but it's more of a kind of white paper think piece to try and guide the discussion of of how laws develop in different states, how insurance goes, how people think about the different sort of framework aspects of driverless cars. And you had this law in Michigan, which was the first... Um, as I understand it, of any U.S. state that right. actually contemplates this happening. So the legislatures are having to begin to think about mm. how this works as well. So the, the reason I think things will come, become a lot clearer in 2017 is things like that. Plus, but Also, we've had, we've had issues with so-called pseudo-driverless cars this year, Tesla being right. the most obvious one. With the, with, it's had a few crashes, but one of them in May led to the death of the driver. Right. And that's been all over the news, obviously. But that will also inform... Yeah, now to, to if, think about what to do next. So, th- so the biggest, as I mentioned, two hundred billion dollar business every year. A little over half of that is what they call liability insurance. Mm-hmm. The rest is damage. Now, you could, as an aside, you could still imagine the owner of a vehicle taking out the damage insurance. Yeah. But the liability is the other side. But it's a long established legal process of figuring out where the liability lies. And what happened with the Tesla crash was that, as we understand it, at least. It was running on what Tesla calls autopilot, which isn't quite which isn't quite an autopilot, which may be part of the problem. Yeah. But in any event, it's possible the driver was distracted, maybe even watching a video, though we don't know that for sure. But in any event, the car did not stop when a big truck crossed the highway and yeah. crashed, and it's very sad. 
um, outcome for everyone concerned. Now, it's not, I think, even certain this case ends up in court, although I believe the family of the mm. gentleman who died did hire a high-profile lawyer. But it's not clear that ends up in court. But if it does, it'll start to clear up some of those legal issues over these driver aids or right. the almost autonomous driving which was going on at that time, particular time in that car. And you may see similar things with other manufacturers' vehicles. You know, they, these aids exist in lots of cars now. Yeah. And, and it's very possible other liability suits could come up. Excellent. Richard, thanks for that. We'll revisit this next year and see how you got on. All right. Following on from driverless cars and insurance, we turn to Uber for our second prediction on the world of cars. And joining us here is Robert Siren, one of our New York-based columnists. And Rob, you're looking at whether Uber goes for an IPO in 2017. If it does, I mean, I think that the CEO, Travis Kalanick, has said they're getting closer, but it doesn't mean it'll happen in 2017. But let's assume it does. You're saying it's actually going to be pretty tricky. So why don't you tell us why you think that's the case? Well, first off, there's the valuation. The last round of financing valued the company at about $68 billion. Um, that's a lot of money. And the problem yeah, is that it, it, Uber is still losing money. It's, it's very big right now. But if you look at the overall size of the taxi cab market, it's world market's probably about a hundred billion dollars for taxi rides all around the world, right. and they're already taking a substantial chunk of that. They've last quarter they had about five billion in gross bookings. That's the amount of money that people paid to right. ride in the. So and that, think, that gave them revenue of a billion. Is that right? Oh uh, yeah, revenue yeah. billion. They, but they still they losing take, money. Yeah, okay. but they lost a um, billion dollars in over the first six months of the year. Right. However, losses will are they. Uber was spending a lot of money in China. They're, they're yeah. losing over a billion dollars a year in China. They're getting out of China now, so that'll cut the losses. However, if they lost a billion in the first half of the year and they lo- they're losing a billion in China, that means that their overall business is still losing a substantial yeah. chunk of money. Um, and the problem is, to $68 billion, okay, if you think that they're already taking a big chunk of the existing cab, the whole cab market, and they're mm-hmm. losing money, that's not great because why you know why should you value this company at sixty eight billion dollars? Right. So what so so what do they do? I mean, they, they've obviously got to get into other businesses. I assume. Yeah. I, you know, you and I have discussed this before. This this awful phrase that's out there in in, in tech land, certainly in in in, in payments and, and fintech, is contextual commerce. The idea that you can do so many different things yeah. within one app, for example, and Uber lets you. Uh, order food and lets you book into hotels and you can do, do all, yeah, you can do all these things. Yeah, you can you can order. You can have food delivered. They're trying to get into logistics. They took over. They they just bought a trucking firm. Um, so they're they're looking at you know ways to get into other services because you have to figure. Okay, if the taxi cab market, if they're not going to value sixty eight billion on yeah. the taxi cab market, they're valued in the other thing and other markets. The other thing they're trying to do is raise their margins. Most of the money that's that. Uber spends is is a lot of what they spend is on subsidies to drivers and also of the the difference between the bookings and what they earn a lot of that's due to paying drivers so if you if you can automate cars for instance yeah that means a lot more of the money goes to Uber instead of to middlemen well they've also got to spend money on the technology right to make sure it yeah. works and then the, the problem is of course that it, this technology it's it's probably not that close to market despite what people say yeah. because they still have you know, you can be ninety nine percent of the way there, and that's the additional one percent is a is a problem if you're driving a car because if you get in an accident, if a yep. self driving car gets in an accident, that's a severe problem, and the government's probably not going to allow that. So you have to. This technology is is only going to be really rolled out when it's completely ready, and that doesn't seem as it's going to happen for several years at least. Right. So let's go through. So the, those who have invested the fifteen billion in the private equity of Uber, mm-hmm. which is valued at sixty eight billion, they clearly are looking 
much more long term. But if you're looking at an IPO, if you're a pension fund manager, for example, or an insurance mm -hmm. company, you're thinking, so the company loses money. It's in an industry which is not growing particularly fast, and these guys are already pretty big in it, uh, and it's not particularly profitable. And expanding costs money, and in some of the bigger markets may take time. And there's one thing we haven't mentioned yet, <laughs> which is Uber, in the 77 countries it's in, and those it's trying to get into, keeps getting involved in various regulatory issues, yes. right? Which just adds to the problem yeah. if you're a, a a public equity investor. Yeah, it's, an, it's not clear it's legal in a lot of cities. You know, that, that, that issue may solve itself, but it'll take a lot of money. You know, Uber's spending, as you say, a ton of money in lobbying. Okay, Rob, last question for you before you go, or should I say, let me put you on the spot before you go. Does Uber do an IPO in 2017? I think 2018. Cool. Thanks, Rob. Welcome. Harry Potter is turning 20. It's hard to believe, and yet the hero and his merry band of classmates, wizards, and archenemy Voldemort are now deeply part of the world's culture. It's worth reflecting, though, that author J.K. Rowling was turned away by dozens of agents and publishers before her book saw the light of day. So joining me is Breaking Views U.S. editor Jeff Goldfarb, whose prediction on the milestone deftly explains why risk assessors need to think more and be more open-minded. Welcome, Jeff. Thanks. Nearly half a billion of these books have been sold around the world. It's like theme parks, uh, movies. <laughs> just It's kind of incredible, like just the multi-billion dollar franchise that this has become. And yet, you know, she was like, J.K. Rowling was going door to door saying, like, will you please publish this book? And in and, and hindsight, it seems like a great story, but, you know, they, she got turned down. So mm -hmm. kind of explain what, what's going on and how Yeah, I mean, look, together. we like nothing more than a good anniversary. And, of course, it's hard to believe that it's 20 years since Harry Potter was first published back in 1997. It'll be, you know, the anniversary will be in 2017. And it felt like a good time to take stock of what has become of this incredible thing. I mean, it, it obviously, um, I think when Bloomsbury first kind of agreed to publish Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone in England two decades ago, I, I hardly believe they even could have envisioned what this was going to turn into. But, you know, yes, it's, it's nearly 500 million copies of the book. The movies related to it have turned out more than $8 billion of uh, box office around the world. And the franchise keeps kind of growing, even without specifically new Harry Potter books. We've got um, the Fantastical Beast series, which looks like it's going to be a five films. Um, it has led to big theme park revenues for NBC Universal with their big park in Orlando. Um, there are T-shirts. There are toy wands. There is a West End play. Uh, there, I mean, it's it has turned into obviously one of the most incredible franchises. It got me thinking um, about this idea of predicting and forecasting and trying to spot what is going to become. And it's amazing to think how many agents and publishers turned down J.K. Rowling, not even imagining what this character and this world could become, but even just a a modest selling children's book series. They, they, they didn't <laughs> right. even, you know, it finally took, you know, years of her pounding the pavement on this to even find somebody that would believe in that idea. And, you know, so as we spent time kind of pulling together our predictions book this year, dovetailing with this anniversary of uh, the publication of Harry Potter, it really got me thinking about sort of the creativity, what it takes to kind of take a chance on on, on seeing something or, or expecting something. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting, too, is it, it sort of marks 
we're coming on the 10 year anniversary of the financial crisis as well. And to me, what it's saying is that everybody's kind of knows in the spreadsheet and it has to fit certain certain areas or certain uh, expectations. And when it doesn't, it's going to be brushed aside. And, and as we've seen, you know, certainly this past year in 2016, all assumptions have been turned upside down for us already. So it's like maybe now people are going to be forced to be creative thinkers and, and more open-minded because all the markers that, that typically tend to you know say, like, here's what's going to happen, I feel like have been kind of blown to smithereens. Well, we've certainly had uh, numerous cases of it in 2016. Um, you know, the election of Donald Trump shocked the world. Britain's vote to leave the EU was on nobody's forecast radar. You know, these are the kinds of things where people just wanted to buy into a an idea, uh, you know, certain ideas gather momentum. You know, one of my favorite, uh, one of my favorite little anecdotes on this kind of notion of the reversion to conventional wisdom, which is so common in finance and economics, as it is in so many walks of life, is this idea that stocks on average, since we've had modern modern data on the markets, U.S. stocks on average have gained about 10% a year since about 1926. So what that leads to a lot of the time, we get to, you know, forecasters look and they say, oh, well, you know, stocks have gained 10%. We've, they plug in their models, they build their spreadsheets. You know, so you see a lot of predictions every year about how the stock market will probably gain 8 to 10% in the coming year. The funny thing is that even though the average gain over the last 90 years has been 10% in stocks, there has never been a single year when stocks gained between 8% and 10%. So, <laughs> you know, but it, it doesn't mean it won't happen one year. It might, maybe it'll happen in 2017. Uh, it may even happen, you know, 2016, who knows. But, but it is this, so we fall into this trap of looking at all, we pull together all the stuff, we revert to a mean, which is how most things tend to happen. But it, it really feels like it, we lose the creativity. We, you know, I'm sure that, you know, if you went back to, agents and publishers that had signed J.K. Rowling, they would say, well, we, you know, we kind of know, and there's a lot of, we get a lot of pitches on these wizards and kids, like, so, you know, they, they have their formulas, they have their marketing, but they kind of know what works, what doesn't work, but of course, there was a time when, like, it didn't fit the norm, right. and um, my hope is that, you know, we can all try to be at least a little bit more creative, keep J.K. Rowling in our heads when, you know, <laughs> when we sit down with our models and our predictions. Yeah, well, that that's true. And now we're, we're uh, stuck with endless uh, offshoots of Harry Potter-like stories. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so anyway, well, listen, Jeff, thank you very much for coming on. Uh, we appreciate your time. Thanks. That's our show for this week, but you can catch Breaking Views live during our prediction panels in Singapore, Hong Kong, London, Paris, and New York the week of January 9th. Check out breakingviews.com for more information. And don't forget to tune in next week for another edition of The Views Room. Thanks for joining us.